My name is Dan, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be together this morning. Uh, as you've heard already, today is the first Sunday of Lent, and as we prepare our hearts, as we reflect on Jesus' um, journey to the cross from Jerusalem or to Jerusalem, we want to be able to do likewise as a church, as it's reflected in our church calendar, as we look to be able to even more so celebrate uh, what Christ has done for us on Easter as, he ra- as He's risen from the dead and from the grave. It's an opportunity for us to be able to sit and recognize our own brokenness, our own sin, and be able to reflect on what Christ has done for us. But also in this season of Lent for our church, we're going to also reflect on what Jesus has said for us in His words, not only in His work. And so we'll be looking at the seven words of Jesus, the seven last words of Jesus as he hangs on the cross. And we'll do that each week leading up to Easter on Sunday morning. And so I'm going to invite Jenny Lynn to come on up. If you have a Bible, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. We're going to be looking at verses 32 through 34. If you don't have a Bible or an app that you're using, we have Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. And there you could turn to page 884 of your church Bibles. And you could read along. It's just three short verses. um, And uh, we'll kind of look at the first word that Jesus speaks as he hangs on the cross. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we give you thanks for your work and your words from the cross that give us life, that give us freedom from what weighs us down in our own brokenness and our sin Um, We can find healing because of the wounds that remain on your hands and your feet and your side. So, Lord, I pray that in this season of Lent, speak to us, give us ears to hear, hear, give us eyes to see, so that we might be made into the image of your Son. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we spend these next seven weeks looking at the words, the last words of Jesus from the cross, we do have to remember that it is in the context of Jesus on the cross that he utters these seven words. And I think it's easy for us to gloss over the fact that he's on the cross and the context of the cross. And I came across Fleming Rutledge. She's an Episcopalian uh, minister. And she reflects on what the cross meant and how we sort of look at it today. And so I just want you to hear her words this morning as we begin with the first words of Jesus when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is what she writes, quote, At the most fundamental level, this can't be emphasized strongly enough. The cross is in no way religious. This is very hard for us to understand today. Over time, we have developed ways of of romanticizing violent death so as to make it seem spiritual and inspiring. We need to make the conscious effort to understand that the cross in reality is by a very long way the most irreligious, unspiritual object ever to find its way into the heart of faith. This fact is a powerful testimony to the unique significance of the death of Christ. There was nothing religious, nothing uplifting, nothing inspiring about a crucifixion. On the contrary, it was deliberately intended to be obscene. It is therefore of the utmost importance to note that in an era when crucifixion was still going on and was widely practiced throughout the Roman Empire, Christians were practicing a de- or proclaiming a degraded, condemned, 
crucified person as the son of God and savior of the world. By any ordinary standard, and especially by religious standards, this was simply unthinkable. Here is one of the most powerful arguments for the truth of the Christian faith. The human religious imagination could not have arrived at a notion so utterly foreign to generally accepted spiritual ideas as that of a crucified Messiah, unquote. In other words, what we celebrate today, what we romanticize today, what we proclaim as the cross being one of, of our faith and what we believe in in the gospel, in the time that Jesus hung on the cross as he was crucified, in no way is it what we see it as today. It was shameful. It was degrading. It was the most humiliating act even for our criminals that deserve death. And this is the one that we proclaim as our Lord and Savior, the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, coming down as man and suffering such humiliation on this earth. And it's in this context that Jesus utters seven words, words that for us give us life, give us hope in the midst of all the suffering and all the violence and all the death and all the hopelessness that our world seems to offer. And what I want to do this morning as we look at this first word, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I want us to look at the implications of those words, both in the past implications of that word, the present as Jesus hung on the cross, and lastly, the future, the confident future that it that it offers us today until we see Jesus face to face again. So let's begin with the implications of what Jesus' words meant for the past, especially in the Old Testament. And what I want us to look at here is that it was a deficient past. And I'll expound on that. But as Jesus utters these words, these words were actually what Jesus needed to utter first. Because this is the mission and the purpose and the importance of why Jesus came into our world. Sinners needed saving. As sinners, we need atonement. We need to be forgiven. And in the past, before Jesus uttered these words, God provided a way for that to actually happen. We've been reading about it in our Bible reading plan. If you've been following along with us, we've been, we entered into Leviticus that's where usually Bible reading plans die. But press on, brothers and sisters, we can do it. But you just read this past week about the way in which God created a way for forgiveness and atonement to happen, right? He provided these five different sacrifices. It began with the burnt offering, then the grain offering, the peace, sin, and the guilt offerings. And in these sacrifices, there were specific ways of how they were to be handled with each animal. Whether there was a goat, a ca cattle, birds, rams, sheep. And God gave very specific instructions of even of how to handle the blood. Whether it was to be poured or whether it was to be sprinkled. And he gave further instructions of how it was to be eaten and how it was supposed to be disposed of. There were very specific instructions of how God provided a way for forgiveness to happen for the people of God in the Old Testament. But the point of why God gave these opportunities and these rituals for the people of God to perform was that it would shape and form their minds and their hearts and instruct them of the serious nature of their sin. 
It would be able to also not only instruct them of the seriousness of their sin, but also the grace of God to provide a substitute to be forgiven and to be atoned. But there was a cost that came with these sacrifices that the people also gave to the priests. Nancy Guthrie, she's an author and speaker, and some of our women went to her conference a few weeks ago. But this is what she says when she talks about the burden and the sacrifice of these, sac- of these offerings. Imagine the expense of taking the best animal in your herd down to the temple in Jerusalem just to be burnt up. That was the animal that would have produced the best offspring, and it wasn't easy to give up. Imagine the time burden if you didn't live in Jerusalem. You would have to travel and find a place to stay. Imagine the emotional or the spiritual burden as you made this trek, knowing that you would have to identify and confess your sin to the priest in offering your sacrifice. But also imagine the burden rolling away when you slit the animal's throat and watched it burn and the priest declare your sin forgiven. Imagine the sense of relief you felt. You would think, it should be me. I'm the one who deserves to die. But this innocent animal has become my substitute. This animal has died so I can live. This was the good news. And although it was good news for the people of God, it was deficient. It was deficient because bulls and goats, their blood could never atone for the sins of God's people. It couldn't. Hebrew writer in chapter 10 talking about this beautiful chapter of God of Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice. He actually reflects on the Old Testament sacrifices and this is what he said. He says, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You see, it was deficient in the way to be able to be forgiven and atoned. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that it was deficient in scope. It could only atone for last year's sins. So the sins that you commit this year, well, sorry, you're living in that guilt and shame until next year's sacrifice. Deficient not only in scope, but efficacy. Every single year, it had to be repeated. You would bring another of your best animals and sacrifice it, and you would offer it. Why? Because it could not, the blood of the bulls and goats could not offer forgiveness and atonement. The efficacy of these sacrifices were deficient, but also it was deficient in form. This was but a shadow just a shadow of what would point to the ultimate final sacrifice in Jesus. And that's what the Hebrew writer says. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, being made perfect, and being made right. You see, as Jesus hung on the cross and utters these first words, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. 
It reflects on the past ways of being forgiven that were absolutely deficient. And here Jesus hangs on the cross in this moment, uttering these words, being the final, ultimate, once and for all sacrifice, offering his blood for the forgiveness of sin for all people. And that's what happens here. But it's so ironic. And this is our second point, the scandalous present of Jesus uttering these words. It's so ironic because as Jesus intercedes for the people to his Father saying, forgive them for they know not what they do. The only way that forgiveness can happen is that he must hang on that cross and his blood must be shed so that we would be forgiven. See, that's the irony. And as one scholar said it, he said the one crying out for God to forgive is simultaneously the one making it possible for God to forgive. In other words, if Jesus just uttered these words, forgive them, they would just be mere sentimentality. They have no weight. We would not be forgiven. But in Jesus interceding and uttering these words, he had to die. He had to be put to shame and suffer. And all of the sins of the world, past, present, future, would be put upon him so that we might be forgiven. That is the scandalous and ironic nature of what Jesus does for us. But the question must be asked, who is being forgiven? And for what? I mean, when Jesus says forgive them, who is them? Who is them here? And at the very least, we know it's for the soldiers who crucified him and nailed him to the cross. It was the religious leaders who condemned him to death. It was those in the crowd that jeered and, and mocked him. But it's not just them. That word them is so vague, right? It's vague enough to realize that that includes us as well as we sit here. Them includes us, and Scripture makes that absolutely clear because we see that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. And you could even make the statement that we are far worse than the soldiers and the religious leaders and the crowds at that time when Jesus uttered these words. Because what does Jesus say? He says, for they know not what they do. They did not know that they were crucifying the Son of God, God himself. They should have known, but they didn't, and yet that does not absolve them from their sin. And yet here we sit, here we stand today, and we do know what we do, and yet we do it every single day. And what is it? What is the sins that we're being forgiven of? Well, for all the ways in which we offend, we defy, we reject, we betray the Creator, and we worship and love and find our worth and satisfaction in created things rather than the Creator. And it's in these ways where we find our loyalties in lesser things, in thought, in word, and deed, in which we crucify our Savior over and over and over again. I appreciated last week's confession of sin as we said that together as a church. Let me read it for you. But this is what we prayed last week. We confess that our love for you is a diluted love, 
made insipid and flat by lesser loyalties and a divided heart. Our love seems pure only for brief moments. Soon our affections are drawn away. How easily our devotion dies. These are the ways in which Jesus interceded on our behalf to his Father. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. But here's the thing that we have to hear this morning. Forgiveness is offered, but we need to receive it. We need to actually receive his forgiveness and the work that he did on the cross as his blood was shed for us. But I think that's hard for us to do. It's one of the reasons my own cousin left the faith because there was nothing he could do. It was just resting upon the work of Jesus and his life that he said, I can't do that. And he converted to Islam. And for many of us sitting here, and for myself included, it is hard for us to rest upon Jesus' work alone where we find forgiveness and atonement. It's true. It is so hard for us to believe that because we want to do something. How can it not be based upon what I do or don't do? When my children mess up royally and I offer forgiveness and I wrap my arm around them, do you know what their inclination is? It's to push away and pull away. And it breaks my heart every time. Because for them, they do not believe that they are worthy of it. They believe that they are undeserving of my love, of their father's love. And it's the same with us. We think we are too broken. We are too fractured. We are too unworthy because of things that have been done to us, things that we have done that we don't deserve the Father's forgiveness and of his love. But the gospel says that it is only because of what Jesus has done that we can receive the forgiveness and love that is in Christ alone. You hear me say this if you're part of our church. Even when the worst is known, even when the worst is known about you, love is still offered. And I can also say forgiveness is also offered to you. But because of the shame, because of our guilt, because of who we think we are, we think that we are undeserving, too broken, too unrepairable for his forgiveness. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus says otherwise. You are the object of his affection. You are delighted in. You are liked and you are loved. Rest in that. Love is offered and forgiveness is offered as well. If that's not incredible enough, there is this confident future that's given to us because of Jesus' words on the cross. As Jesus interceded for us on the cross that we would be forgiven, there is this confident future we hold on to that is implicated here in his words. That he continues to intercede for you and for me to this day on and until he returns. He intercedes for you right now. Jesus did not remain dead and is not buried in a grave, but we will celebrate in seven weeks on Easter that he is alive. And every Sunday that we get together, he conquered death and rose from the grave and he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. 
And here's the beautiful confidence we have for all our sins committed past, present, and future. Till the day we would die, Jesus looks to his Father and says, forgive them. Whether they know what they did or not, however heinous or grievous your sins are, however small or big, forgive them because my blood has forgiven and covered their sin and made them clean because of my perfect work on the cross. And that's what the Hebrew writer says. He says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It means that there's nothing you or I could ever do or say or be that would put us beyond the reach of Jesus's prayers. Do you know that? Nothing is too far for him to forgive us for what we've done or for who we are. We are not beyond the reach of Jesus' prayers that was uttered on the cross. But the other thing is, is that nothing, this also means that no one, including your enemies, those that have wronged you, your family members, your children, your parents, your coworkers, your good friends at school, those enemies that you want to hate are beyond the reach of Jesus' prayers as well. So that means as we have received the scandalous love and forgiveness of Jesus, we offer that to our enemies as well. That is the gospel. When we have experienced the, the forgiveness of God, it causes us to forgive others as well as Jesus interceded on our behalf. This is the beauty and the wonder of Jesus' words on the cross. Forgive them for they know not what they do. I was reminded recently of the power of Jesus' intercession for us through a story that one of my cohorts in my doctor of ministry class uh, shared with me not too long ago. And I'm going to just read what she shared with me of a story of when she adopted or when they adopted their second child, a daughter. So listen to these words as we think about how Jesus intercedes for us. My son was six years old when we adopted our daughter. The adoption agency had a policy that if the older child was old enough, he could be the one to bring the baby out to the parents to present her to them. I had long dreamed of this baby and what she would look like and stood there so anxiously awaiting for her to come out with their son holding her. But what they didn't know as they waited was that she had experienced a very difficult forceps delivery and had some nerve damage that caused her little lip to droop down like this and left quite a dent in her cheek with one eye swollen shut she had developed a virus as well in the foster care where she had been for a week and they had to shave half of her head to get to the IV or to get the IVs in. She did not look at all like what I had pictured in my head. She was really quite a mess. And when Jeremy, their son, brought her out, he was beaming from ear to ear. And he held out he held her out to us and he said, just look at her. Isn't she so pretty? 
doesn't she look just like me? And it has always been such a picture of the gospel to us in our family. We come to the elder brother Jesus, battered and bruised, and he holds us out to his father because he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And he says, look at them. Don't they look just like me? And this is how the father sees us in Christ, forgiven and redeemed. The most beautiful part of the story is that one day when the Holy Spirit is finished with his work in us, Jesus will present us finally to the Father and say, here I am and the children you have given me. And the Father will say, I would have known them anywhere. They look just like you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that we only look like you because of what you have done for us. So Lord, I pray this morning for every single person sitting here that we would be able to rest upon these words that you interceded and uttered to the Father. That we are forgiven no matter what's been done to us, no matter how broken we are, how fractured we are, how undesirable we may believe we, believe we are. Lord, help us to rest in the love and the forgiveness of our Savior. Do that good work we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Continue in worship this morning.